Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts. We're starting a series in 1 Corinthians. And the the backdrop to 1 Corinthians, and really almost all of Paul's epistles, is the book of Acts. And once you're in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is right after the Gospel of John. Once you're in the book of Acts, skip to Acts chapter 18. Because it is in Acts chapter 18... Um, that the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, that he leaves Athens and he travels about 15 miles down the Peloponnesian coast and he comes to the city of Corinth in late 51 AD. By the way, did you guys get your notes this morning? Okay, good. Here's the deal with the notes. I thought I should Anytime we do an overview of the book, I thought it would just be nice to to have a set of notes. This is not going to become a weekly thing. You're not going to get them every week. I was just kind of feeling generous this morning. Um, Just so you wouldn't have to feverishly try to scribble and take notes. But So it would be helpful, I think, to refer back to as we're working our way through uh, 1 Corinthians. But um, it doesn't give you license to not pay attention this morning. But you have them. You can look at them as, as we go. So he, Paul travels from Athens to Corinth in late 51 AD. And I want to read just the first 11 verses of Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 18. Because the church of Corinth that gets planted here um, goes on to become one of the most vibrant but messy churches in the New Testament. Vibrant but messy. Can a church be both vibrant and messy at the same time? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. And Corinth was that church. So, let's begin. Verse 1 in Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a a native of Pontus, recently come from uh, from Italy... With his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, Paul, went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul gets into the city. And his first way of making introduction to the committee is not by opening up and preaching. It's by going in and working. He, he knew the workplace would open up a ton of avenues for gospel ministry. And so he needed a little bit of money to support himself in order to preach. And so he begins uh, this tent making. He's, he was a tent maker by trade. And so he starts working and it opens up all sorts of avenues. All uh, work, by the way. Your work and my work opens up avenues for the gospel proclamation. If we do it well. If we do our work well. It opens up all sorts of avenues for the gospel proclamation. If you do your work poorly, it shuts down all sorts of avenues for gospel proclamation. Keep that in mind. So Paul goes there. He gets to the city. He knows he, his long-term goal is to preach the gospel. But he doesn't know anybody. So he connects with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And he knows that if he does his work well, it's going to open up opportunities for gospel ministry. And so he starts working alongside of them. Keep going. Verse Uh, Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the, home, to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> Crispus, now note this, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. 
For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he, Paul, stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God amongst them. Okay, I want you to note, and I put them in the notes, I want you to note these three realities about Paul's ministry in Corinth. First, first thing to note, it's, it was centered on the proclamation of Christ. What's his ministry about? It's about the proclamation of Christ as the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. That, Christ, that uh, Jesus was the Christ. We're told in verse 5 that when Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth... They found Paul occupied with the word. Occupied with the word. That's shorthand for being occupied with the gospel. Telling people that Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, the the king in God's kingdom. Who will rescue and redeem and will lead forth God's people. And so when Paul, note this, when he went to Corinth, he planted the gospel. Not the church. Sometimes people get that confused. They think, well, I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to plant the church. No, 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 no. What you do is you plant the gospel in the soil of the community that you're trying to reach. And if the Lord works and regenerates people, brings forth new life, then a church is birthed. But you start with the gospel. You always start with gospel proclamation. That's what Paul does. He planted the gospel. And he used everything at his disposal to make sure the gospel was heard. He did this publicly. Of course, in his workplace, but he did it publicly as well in the synagogue. And then we're told he does it privately in the home of Titius Justice. And we're told in verse 4 that he reasoned with both Jews and Greeks. And the word for reasoned, um, it can mean to engage in discourse. It can mean to argue your point with the hope of persuading another person. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to convince them of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ so that the Lord would work in them by the power of the Holy Spirit and convert them to the reality of Jesus as their personal Savior. And that's what he's trying to do. He's, he's in public discourse with them. It has this, it, the aim of seeking to convince in order to convert. And Paul did this. And then we're told in verse 5 that he was testifying to the Jews. There, he was testifying to the Jews that that Jesus was the Christ. And the idea of testifying, it, it carries with this idea of a bold declaration. And Paul did this. Even though he says in 1 Corinthians that he came to Corinth in fear and trembling. Because it was an impressive place. And he came in fear and trembling. And yet, he put aside his fears and declared the reality of Jesus Christ. By the way, let me ask you. Do you ever feel, fear, do you ever feel fearful when you bring up the name of Jesus Christ in conversation. Do you? I do. All the time. Why? Well, because the thought of rejection terrifies me. And so it is a fearful thing to say, no, I'm going to hold forth, and I'm going to tell you, I think you're actually wrong about this, and Jesus is right. That's a, that's a terrifying thing. You've got to put aside your feelings sometimes and say, no, I know this to be true, and it may lead to rejection, It may lead to a breakdown of our relationship for a season, but hopefully not. But even if it does, I'm going to go forth with this. So first, the ministry in court, it was centered on the proclamation of Christ as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. He both argued for and declared that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Second thing to note, it rested on God's sovereign purposes. His ministry in Corinth, it rested on God's sovereign purposes. Did you see in verses 9 and 10, the Lord came to Paul in a vision and he said, keep on speaking about me. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? What does it say? For I have many in this city who are my people. Do you know what that means? That means... That God the Father, from ages ago, has chosen some within Corinth to be saved. And the Spirit of God will use Paul's communication to bring them to saving faith in the Son. So the Father planned it. The Spirit brings it about. 
And it results in saving faith in the Son. So it's a completely Trinitarian thing. Is that not amazing? This is the Lord's work. And that realization given by the Lord to Paul, that he has people in Corinth, and the the Spirit was going to use Paul's ministry to bring, bring people to saving faith in the Son, that gave Paul the courage he needed to stay on in Corinth for the next 18 months preaching the Word of God. It's an, an, an huge encouragement that the Lord says, no, I have people within this community and I'm going to use you to bring them to saving faith. By the way, uh, do you know and do you actually believe? Because it's one thing to like have mental assent to something. It's another thing for it to grip your heart. Do you know and do you actually believe that the Father has placed within your community, whether that community, community is a geographical location or it's your work community, or it's an educational community, or it's some other type of community, that the Father has chosen people within that community. And the Spirit will actually use your words and your lives and your conversations to elicit saving faith in the Son. Do do you realize that? And do you really believe it? You should. You should jot down. I I will. I gave it to you in the notes. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In Ephesians 1, Paul says this. He says, he, talking about the Father, the Father chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, now note this, in love he predestined us, don't be scared of the word predestination, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, if we genuinely believe that the Lord has chosen, he has chosen people to be saved in each and every community, and that the Spirit uses our lives and our words to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you know what that means? It means your ministry, and all of us should have some sort of a ministry, it means your ministry and mine, it rests not on our ability, it rests not on our eloquence, It rests not on our wisdom, but on God's sovereign purposes. And you know what that does for you? When you realize that, it free. Are you guys still listening? Okay. It's been a while. You know what that does? It frees you. If you realize it doesn't rest on your ability, your eloquence, your wisdom, it frees you to simply be yourself. It frees you to simply love. To live in the love like Jesus in the community in which he's placed you. And that is wonderful. You don't have to be fake. You don't have to be inauthentic. You can simply be yourself and say, the Lord's placed me in this community. And I'm a part of this community for this season, for this purpose to minister here. And the Lord's going to use me. I don't have to over preach the message. That is so darn freeing. So, note these things. Paul's ministry in Corinth, it centered on the proclamation of Christ as the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. It rested on God's sovereign purposes. Uh, and lastly, it produced two reactions. Two reactions. On the one hand, it produced opposition and reviling. Opposition and reviling. We saw that in verse 6, where we're told that some of the Jews opposed Paul. They opposed and reviled him. So some rejected Paul and his message. And it's my guess, if you've ever uh, spoken of the gospel to people you know, people you love, that within those conversations, sometimes you've probably been opposed you, the message has probably been rejected and maybe you've been rejected as well. And so that, on one hand, that takes place. Anytime the gospel's preached, there is opposition to it. And sometimes you'll be reviled. But on the other hand, notice, it produced repentance and new life. Repentance and new life. We read that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed. He and his entire household. And then many other Corinthians believed. And they were baptized. And that results in the birth of the Corinthian church. So right in the middle of this bustling city of Corinth, you have this new community of Christians who have given their life to Christ. But probably, but probably like you, when you first gave your life to Christ, you probably had very limited understanding of what that means, right? Do you remember when you first got saved? How much... Did you actually know about what it meant to live like Christ? 
probably very limited amount, right? That's the same for them. They had a very limited understanding of what it actually meant to be a Christian. Okay, now with that, turn over to 1 Corinthians. Because this is the background to Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is right after the book of Romans. This is, as I just said, Acts 18 is the background to Paul's letter to the new community of Christians in the city of Corinth. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to do, like we do anytime we start a new series, we're going to do a flyover over the book. We'll do just a quick, well, when I say quick, we'll be here for a while, but we'll do a, a, a flyover of the book so that we can see the landscape and we can see where we're going. So let me give you a little bit of information about the book itself. And I say a little bit because... We could spend the next hour just on the book itself. But let me just give you a little bit. First thing to note, and most of you know it, is it's written by the Apostle Paul. Paul came to Corinth, as I mentioned, in late 51 AD. And he stayed for the next year and a half. Which means he left Corinth uh, to go to Ephesus in year 53. And so a couple of years later, while he's on his third missionary journey in Ephesus... He writes the letter to the Corinthians. So it's written by the Apostle Paul. Now here's the second thing you need to know. It's one of four Corinthian letters. It's one of four. How many Corinthian letters are in your Bible? Two. Which means two of them were not preserved. But there's actually, there were, there were actually four Corinthian letters that were written by the Apostle Paul. At some point, after he left Corinth, he received a report that there were things, there were some things going on in Corinth that were not good. And, uh, some of the living within the church community at Corinth had gotten sideways. And so he penned a letter, um, he penned a letter to the Corinthian church. Turn with me. You're in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to chapter 5. I want you to see it. Chapter 5. And once you're there, uh, skip down to verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So, So Paul had written them a letter previously. Well, where's the letter? We don't know. It, it wasn't preserved. The Lord didn't think we needed it for faith and godliness. Within the canon of scripture is everything the Lord saw fit that we needed for a life of faith and godliness. And apparently this first letter that was written to the Corinthians uh, wasn't needed for a life of faith and godliness. So while there was a previous letter written, um, we don't have it. And what we know as 1 Corinthians wasn't actually the initial letter that was written to the Corinthians. So he'd sent them a previous letter. And then while he's in Ephesus, he gets another report about the Corinthian church. Look at chapter 1. Skip down to verse, verse 11. He says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he gets a letter that says there's quarrels, there's quarreling that's happening within the church. Can such a thing be? Can there actually be quarrels within a church? Well, yeah, there can be. (laughs) Apparently this was the case. Uh, So he receives a letter about the quarrels. Now skip over to chapter 7. Once you're in chapter 7, look at the very first verse. Look at what he says. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. You see that phrase, now concerning? That phrase, it's repeated six times, starting in chapter 7 that, and all the way through chapter 16. And it means, in the letter that he had received, they asked him a series of questions that he responds to. So, quarrels and questions. So, Paul writes what we know as 1 Corinthians. 
after receiving this letter that there were quarrels and they had questions. And so he writes what we know as 1 Corinthians. And then when he hears that things in the church are continuing to worsen, Paul sails directly from Ephesus to Corinth for what he calls in the letter, 1 Corinthians, he calls it a short, painful visit. So he goes to Corinth, he has to kind of rebuke them, and that is painful for a pastor. It's incredibly painful when you have to rebuke people that you love. It's kind of like as a parent, when you have to rebuke your kiddos, it's painful. It's painful for a pastor to have to rebuke people within his church who he loves. But he, he does it. He goes from, from Ephesus to Corinth uh, for a short, painful visit, and then he writes them another letter, which also wasn't preserved, but it's mentioned in Second Corinthians. And um, in that, when he mentions it in Second Corinthians, he calls on the Corinthians to repent. And then he writes what we know as Second Corinthians. Um, so there's such extensive correspondence because Paul loves them. He really loves them. He has spent 18 months with them. He's poured himself into them. He loves them and he wants them to grow into Christ's likeness. He says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's the heart of a pastor for the congregation he serves. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he wants to make clear who they are in Christ. He wants to make that really clear. And then also to make clear of his love for them. So, 1 Corinthians is written by Paul. It's one of four Corinthian letters, two of which we have, and two of which we'll be working through over the next couple months. Couple years, maybe. And then third, it's written to a very young and gifted and yet troubled group of Christians. Very young, very gifted, and yet a troubled group of Christians. Just as there are sets of challenges for older, mature Christians, there is a completely different set of challenges for young and gifted Christians. And they started, this young group of Christians, they started so well in the grace of the Lord. Um, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to, again, I want you to see it. They started so well. Look at what Paul says. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They started, up, they started so strong in the grace of the Lord, living in God's grace, living out the gifts of the Spirit that the Lord had given them within the city of Corinth. But then things got sideways. They started strong, but things got sideways really quickly. Look at verse 10. Paul continues to write, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and, the, and, the, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you, uh, each of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Or I follow the really spiritual ones. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he says, parentheses. Oh yeah, I also did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So this group that started so strong ended up going sideways. And disunity and carnality were the result. Well, how did a group that was started so strong end up going sideways? It's the same way that so many churches in America start so strong and they go sideways. They stop focusing on the gospel. And they let peripheral thing, peripheral things become the focus. That's always how it happens. They start strong in the grace of the Lord by focusing on the gospel. And then they think, oh, well, there's more important things. I got to go focus on those things. And that is simply not the case. And when in, and whenever that happens, churches go sideways. Christians, individuals go sideways, and then whole churches go sideways. A lot of people think, Tim Keller used to say, God bless him. Keller used to say, the, uh, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's not the ABCs of the Christian faith, like it's the entry point into the Christian life. No, the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian faith. And when you realize that, you stay focused on the gospel. Because the gospel affects every little thing in our lives. What the gospel is and how it, the implications of the gospel, it shapes all of our decision making. And the moment we start focusing on other things, I like this thing more than that thing. I think this political party better represents the Lord's vision. I think this thing over here. The moment we stop focusing on the actual gospel and we let these little things, side peripheral things, become the focus of our attention, we instantly go sideways and we start thinking just like the world. And that's what was happening in Corinth. That's exactly what was happening. Um, so, whoever that guy is, he sounds intelligent. Um, <laughs> they stopped focusing on the gospel. So this was a very young, very gifted, and yet incredibly troubled church. They were Paul's troubled church. Um, no show of hands, but those of you who have kids... Do one of your kids tend to cause more problems than the other? <laughs> do one of your kids, no looking at your kids right now, my goodness, do one of your kids keep you up later at night where you can't fall asleep because you're thinking, they have completely screwed up their life. And you're thinking, I'm going to have to pay for this again. Okay, that feeling, parents... That's the feeling Paul had with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was crazy town. I mean, they were flat crazy. They, well, why all the problems? Because of the context and the culture in which the Corinthian church was birthed. So, now let me tell you a little bit about Corinth itself. Four characteristics, this is all on your notes, four characteristics of the city of Corinth. First, it was a commercial center. It was a commercial center. The location of Corinth virtually guaranteed its success as a major commercial center in the uh, ancient world. It was situated on a narrow isthmus, only four miles wide, which connected southern Greece, southern Greece to the mainland. And uh, it was the hub, Corinth became the hub of trade and commerce. The city boasted two, two ports. Can I get that map uh, brought up? I want you to see it. So, oh boy, I can't even see it. This worked better in my mind when I was... Let's go to the next one. There we go. Okay. You see Achaia? Right above Achaia is this little four-mile stretch of land that, uh, that connected southern Greece to mainland Greece. And on either side, there were two ports. Two ports. Um, and to the east was Asia... And to the west was Rome. Today a canal, we can go ahead and put up the next one. Today a canal cuts across the isthmus in order for ships to pass through. But in Paul's day, due to the treacherous uh, journey around the Peloponnesian coast, um, and it would add six to seven days of travel, ships, what they would do is they would unload cargo on, in one port where they paid an import tax. And then they would have all their cargo carried across and then they would ship it from the other port where they would have an export 
uh, tax. So, so you were being taxed. They got you coming and going. And then if you had a small ship, because it was only a four-mile strip of land, they, a lot of times the smaller ships, they would just load the ship onto the ground on rollers, and they had a paved road, and they would just roll the ship the four miles into the other court, to the other port. And again, you paid a hefty price. So in Paul's time, Corinth was this busy, bustling commercial center. It became the wealthiest city in Greece. And the people gained a reputation for, in business as being absolutely ruthless and greedy. Does that sound like any culture you know? We even have movies where the tagline in it is, greed is good. Remember the Michael Douglas character in Wall Street? The gets up in front of all the stockholders and he makes his case and he says, greed is good. And man, I tell you what, I remember when that movie came out and I remember um, Wall Street. They had a Wall Street too, not too long ago. Also was a mega hit. But that infused in that culture. Uh, the wealth and the power it brought was in the bloodstream of the culture. And it was brought right on into the church. Because if that's part of your culture, and you grew up in that culture, and you get saved out of that culture, and it's in the bloodstream of the culture, that gets brought right on into the church. And if you evaluate life by wealth and power, what you do when you come into the church, and you do this both if you're wealthy or if you're poor, and if you're poor, you can do it both ways. But if you evaluate life by wealth and power, you automatically, automatically, you set up class distinctions within the body of Christ. You automatically do it. If you evaluate life by wealth and power, and in America we do, let's not kid ourselves, we do. And if that's how you, if that's how you determine what success is, then you automatically bring that right on into the church. And we'll see in the weeks ahead, that was one of the major problems within the Christian community at Corinth. So it was a commercial center. Second thing to note, it was infused with a spirit of competition. It was infused with a spirit of competition. Corinth, Corinth was the home to the Isthmian Games, which happened every two years, and it was second only to the Olympic Games. And it was also home to the Imperial Games and the Caesarean Games, which happened every four years. So just imagine, every two years in your town, you're hosting the Super Bowl. That's, that's what it was, would have been like. And it was the first, Corinth was the first Roman city to uh, introduce the gladiatorial games. Those started in Corinth, not in Rome. They started in Corinth. They were infused with competition. Also introduced in Corinth, uh, they introduced athletic competitions for women. The first city in the ancient world to, to introduce athletic competitions for women, including a, a, a woman rider who would jump from one team of horses to another. That was the, the athletic event for the women. So it was a culture that was steeped in and relished competition. Anthony uh, Thistleton, in his commentary, new, brand new commentary on the book of First Corinthians, and it's excellent, he says this. He says, the people of Corinth were in general terms a thrusting, ambitious, and competitive people. Now, can competition be good? Well, it's the start of the NFL season, and it can be a great thing. When the Seahawks beat the 49ers, there's nothing better than competition. But can an ethos of competition be a bad thing? Can an ethos of competition be a bad thing? Well, it can, especially if it creeps into your spiritual life. And you're no longer simply relying on the grace of the Lord given to you in Christ. But you're competing against your brothers and sisters about who's doing more. And who's more spiritual. And whose gifts of the Holy Spirit are greater. Who's making a bigger impact for the kingdom of God. Who's actually representing the Lord better. If that gets brought into the church, deadly. Absolutely deadly. And so the Corinthian church, they were infused with a spirit of competition and it, because it was just a part of their culture. And when they came into the body of Christ out of that culture, they automatically assumed that competition and self-promotion 
was good. But they needed and we need to actually consider if the assumptions of our culture need to be reevaluated in light of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel, think about it, the message of a humiliated, crucified Christ, it was an affront to people who cherished success and loved winners. And this had raised an ugly head in the church of Corinth. So Corinth was infused with the spirit of competition. Third, it was, a cos- it was cosmopolitan in character. It was cosmopolitan in character because it was an international hub of business and tourism. And because it was so wealthy, Corinth quickly grew to the size of about seventy to 80,000 citizens, which was surpassed in the ancient world only by Rome and Alexandria. And they thought of themselves as so sophisticated. And they were influenced by a group of people known as the Sophists. Uh, and the Sophists, Sorry I'm giving you so much history, but it all comes out to play in the the book. The sophists were not so much philosophers, but they were audience-pleasing rhetoricians. Uh, They were the orators of their day. And remember, you didn't have TV. You didn't have movies. You didn't have YouTube to bore you to death. You didn't have social media. So they would listen to people speak, and you would pay people to speak. And the orators of Corinth weren't so much concerned about truth as they were about impressing, gaining, and holding an audience. So it's a lot like cable news today. They're not concerned about the truth. They're just concerned about if they can win an audience and hold an audience through the commercial break. That is NBC News and Fox News in a nutshell. Right there. Uh, and this is the, this is the rhetoricians of that day. One historian laments the prostitution of rhetoric into the status of mere performance by media stars and public cult figures. He says this. He says their oratorical flourishes and spin are greeted with a storm of applause, shouts of unseemly enthusiasm, and the result is vanity and empty self-sufficiency. Now this is why, when you get into the book of 1 Corinthians, this is why Paul says, I didn't come to you like this. I didn't come to you with eloquent speech. I didn't come to you with words of, of, of wisdom. My testimony of God was not with lofty speech. Why? Because I didn't want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He was speaking. What he was doing, he was speaking against the readers, against the orators. And we'll see how the, the church in Corinth, they carried that idea right into their Christian life. This cosmopolitan character and their love for oratory skill. And it created tension within that church. Now let me ask you this. Is it wrong to have a favorite preacher? No, it's not wrong to have a favorite preacher. But wh- when it get, becomes wrong is when you say, well, I'm only going to come to church if that guy's speaking. I'm only going to listen if that guy's speaking. Um, You need to be able to look past the oratory and see if there's gospel substance there. It's not wrong to have a favorite person. Some people's messages resonate resonate with you better than others. But if you can't get past the oratory skill to actually see if there's gospel substance there, that's where the problem is. And that's what was happening in Corinth. They were elevating preachers to a godlike status. They were saying, well, I won't listen to anybody else. They, that guy has the real wisdom. So I'm not going to listen to that guy. So that's Corinth. It was a commercial center. It was infused with a spirit of competition. It was cosmopolitan in character. Lastly, note this, it was pluralistic and pagan. Uh, pluralistic meaning the worship of multiple gods. Uh, within Corinth, there were temples and deities of all sorts. Uh, you had Apollo, who was the god of prophecy. You had Eclipsius, the god of medicine, whose grounds resembled health spots, very 21st century. You had Pisidian, the god of the seas, and you had the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and lust. And on the Acrocorinth, which was above the city, um, there was a temple to her, and it attracted all sorts of tourists and pilgrims, because the temple prostitutes were there. And you would go in and you would engage in a temple prostitute for worship uh, you would engage in worship by engaging with the temple prostitute. And they thought nothing of this. In fact, dad and grandpa would take the kids 
to the Aphrodite temple to engage in worship. They thought nothing of it. It was just like Thanksgiving dinner for you. It was a normal part of your life. And you could see why when they came into the church then, there was this tension with Christianity's sexual ethic. Wait, you mean to tell me that sex isn't just a bodily appetite? You're you're telling me it's sacred? And that our bodies don't just belong to us, but that they belong to the Lord and we're to honor him? You see how, you see how sideways that would hit you if you were raised in a, in a culture where you would go and engage in sex to worship. It would hit you, it would hit you so sideways. You can see now why there was so much tension within the Corinthian church. It's not that they were dumb. It's because they had grown up in a community that is so antithetical to everything that Christ's community is actually about. When you're brought out of one culture, you're brought out of one community and you're brought into Christ and his community, its wisdom, its values, and its ethics are completely different. And this is what causes distress in Corinth. And by the way, it is what causes distress in every church today. New people, praise the Lord, they're saved out of the kingdom of darkness and they're brought into the kingdom of light But there's real tension there. There's real stress because they live so much of their life in the, within the culture. And the culture is invaded by the kingdom of darkness. And so there's tension there. And the Christian community's response then is, we're not going to kick you out. We're going to love you well. We're going to help you grow into Christ likeness. And that's what Paul's trying to do. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians to speak into the challenges that they were facing. Paul saw three things that were taking place. First, note this, they were confused on the nature of wisdom. They were confused on the nature of wisdom, which led to disunity. Remember, the Corinthians were infused with the spirit of competition. They were uh, caught up with being, being, having a high status and being thought of as sophisticated. It was incredibly important to them. And so Paul confronts this head on by contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the cross. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to get moving here. I'm going to have to start talking really fast. Verse 18. For the word of the cross, note, note this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Uh, The wisdom of the world, by the way, is not so much a system of thought as it is an attitude that runs counter to the wisdom of the cross. Look at 21. For since in the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying the wisdom of the cross, that which they consider foolishness, uh, the, the wisdom of the cross, that which they consider fo- the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest thing humanity individually and collectively has ever done. And what they consider the weakness of God is more powerful than the strongest thing that humanity individually and collectively has ever done. The cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, it has the power to forgive and to save anyone and everyone, the the wise and the foolish, the untrained and the trained. So he's contrasting the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world, this attitude of life that is egocentric, it fills you with pride. While the wisdom of the cross, it empties you of pride. 
The wisdom of the world is marked by hubris. While the wisdom of the cross is marked by humility because you recognize who you are in relation to God. The wisdom of the world, it cherishes self-exaltation and elitism. The wisdom of the cross, it cherishes the self-emptying love of Christ. The wisdom of the world, it seeks its own advantage no matter how, how it hurts others. The wisdom of the cross, it seeks to serve others with no regard to personal cost. The wisdom of the world, it leads to the breakdown of real community. While the wisdom of the cross, it leads to the building up of real community. Why? Because we recognize we're all sinners who have been saved, not on the basis of our wisdom, not on the basis of our religious discipline, not on anything we've done. We're saved simply and wholly because of the, because of the grace given to us in Christ. So Paul wrote... Because he knew that they were confused on the nature of wisdom. And he tells the Corinthian church, you must reject the wisdom of the world. You must reject the wisdom of the world. This, this attitude that says you can figure it all out. And that you and you alone are the, the source of all knowledge. You must reject the wisdom of the world and you must embrace the wisdom of the cross. So they were confused on the nature of wisdom. Second, they were corrupted by the sin matrix of the culture. They were corrupted by the sin sin matrix of the culture, which led to uh, disorder. Uh, Turn over to chapter 5. We'll move quick, I promise. Um, What they had going on... Actually, look at chapter 6. We'll go to chapter 6. They had, in their community, they had unrepentant... That's the key phrase, by the way. Unrepentant sexual immorality. And remember, sexual immorality in their culture uh, was acceptable in their culture. More acceptable in their culture than it is in our culture, which is pretty darn acceptable. Look at what Paul says, uh, verse 15 in chapter 6. He's writing to this church who, who has this unrepentant sexual immorality taking place. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, Corinthian brother, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, remember, he's not talking about prostitutes like streetwalkers in our culture. He's talking about the temple prostitutes that we talked about at the Acrocorinth, the temple to Aphrodite. He tells them, what you're doing is you're caught up in the sin matrix of your culture, but you need to flee from sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, he's saying, isn't just a bodily appetite like you're hungry. It's sacred. Sex is sacred, which means you can't mess with it. You don't get to define it. So they had unrepentant sexual sin, but they also had a real inability to settle differences with one another. Well, why would that be the case? Because they were infused with competition. Everything was competition. So they had a real inability to settle differences with each other, which which ended up leading to them suing one another. Look at, you're in chapter 6, look at verse 1 and 2. When one of you have a grievance against another, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you so incompetent? Are you so incompetent to try trivial cases? He says, why can't you just settle differences yourself? Why do you have to take it to the worldly court? Brothers and sisters, you should be able to work this out. Go down to verse 4. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But a brother goes to law against the brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
Why not rather suffer? Now note this. It's so countercultural. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's saying within a Christian community, a brother and a sister in the Lord, if they're really a Christian, they'll disadvantage themselves for a brother and sister in the Lord in order to keep the relationship. Why? Why would they be willing to do that? Because Christ has disadvantaged himself. The only way we were brought into a relationship with the Lord is because Christ had disadvantaged himself. And if it means we're going to break relationship with one another, a Christian should be willing to say, I'll disadvantage myself in order, for, in order for us to keep relationship. Because the body of Christ is that important. By the way, no other religion, no other philosophy in the world teaches that. Um, by the way, this is not forbidding a Christian from going to court in the, under any circumstances. It's not saying that at all, as some people have claimed. Uh, and there are good Christian lawyers, by the way. I know one. One of my really good friends is a Christian lawyer. He does excellent and honorable work. But what Paul is saying here is that the sin matrix of the culture, the way the sin gets expressed in that culture, it has corrupted their fellowship, and it will lead to disorder. Third reason he wrote, and I'm, oh gosh, they were caught up in Greek thinking. They were completely caught up in Greek thinking. And that leads to deficient living. In chapters 7 through 16, I I won't make you turn to any of it. Um, But remember, in Greek thinking... The material was bad. Material was bad. Immaterial was good. And they were caught up in this way of thinking. And it came out in practical matters. We already saw in chapter 6 that they had a viewed skew on sex. They had a skewed, sorry, a skewed view on sex. We already saw that. That some thought sex outside of marriage didn't matter. Our bodies aren't going to be saved, so sex outside of matter, sex outside of marriage doesn't matter. If it's not going to be saved, I might as well go and have it. Well, in chapter 7, the first couple of verses are about sex within marriage. And everybody pays attention when we get to chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, because it, start, it starts talking about sex within marriage. Actually, I'm going to read it to you, just to wake you back up. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Um, so some people thought that sex outside of marriage didn't matter, but there were some people who thought that sex within marriage was unspiritual. Well, why would they think that? Well, because in Greek thinking, again, if matter was bad... You're joining two matters together. And so they would say, well, that's really bad. And then sex within marriage shouldn't happen. It's unspiritual. And Paul disagreed. And I disagree. He's saying, no, sex within a heterosexual, monogamous, lifetime marriage is good and healthy. And we'll talk more about that. And I'm sure you all will stay awake as we're working through that section. So they had skewed views on sex. Second, they had a spiritistic view on Christian ministry. That's in chapters 12 through 14. Um, They thought of themselves as super spiritual. And they took that definition of what spiritual looks like from the the surrounding religions. And what they thought was um, being filled with the Spirit meant essentially being like um, possessed. And you would speak uncontrollably. And so Paul had to say, no, 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 that's not what spirit, what being spirit-filled means. Uh, a, a genuine Christian is spirit-filled, but it's not about power. It's not about self-promotion. It's about an, a loving exercise to the body of Christ for the building up of the community. So they had a spiritistic view on Christian ministry. Lastly, they had a skeptical view on physical resurrection. A skeptical view on physical resurrection. Paul in chapter 15 gives the most extensive treatment on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, because Christ has defeated sin and death, and you're in him, you too have already defeated sin and death. Is that not amazing? He says, because Christ has already defeated death, because Christ has defeated it, and has been raised to new life, and you're in him, you too have already defeated death, and you've been raised to new life. That is amazing. So they were, thought up in, they were caught up in Greek thinking. They had a skewed view on sex, 
a a spiritistic view on Christian ministry, a skeptical view on physical resurrection, and they needed to replace Greek thinking with gospel thinking, which will lead to, when you replace the thinking of your culture with gospel thinking, what it will lead to is fuller living and fuller loving. And that's what Paul says. Okay, I've talked too long. Let me close with this. Why should we study this book? Why should we study the book? Why should we take the next year or two and study 1 Corinthians? Study the, the Corinthian correspondence, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Let me give you three reasons. They're in your notes. First, it'll enrich our unity. It will enrich our unity. One of the main reasons I really want to teach through this book, to teach through the Corinthian letters, is because the church there was so divided. There were cliques, there were factions, and there were division. And if we're honest, the American church just came out of a season that was so darn divisive. And there became cliques and divisions and factions that spilt right on into the church. And so what we need, we need to be reminded that we're all on equal footing before the Lord. Paul says in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 28, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for unity within the body of Christ. And if Jesus prayed for that, what it means is we need to be praying for it. We need to be actively praying for it. We need to be promoting it. And we need to be working against anything that would undermine it. And Corinthians will help us with that. It'll enrich our unity. And we need that. We need it. Second, it'll, it'll uh, enhance our understanding. It'll enhance our understanding, which enables us to live out uh, better the gospel. Well, what will it enhance our understanding on? I don't know, practically everything. Marriage, divorce, singleness, the topic of liberty and giving up our rights, the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, the resurrection of Christ, and everybody's favorite topic, financial giving to the church. Everybody wants to talk about that. Can't wait to preach that one. Actually, I think we'll have somebody else preach that one. But you, you see, we need doctrinal clarity. Why do we need it? Because we live in a world that's so confused about everything. We can't even figure out if there's two genders or not. We live in a world that is confused about everything. And if we don't have clarity, if the church of Christ doesn't have clarity, and I will tell you, um, there's a... There's a study that comes out every year. It's called the State of Theology within the Evangelical Church. I get it every year. It's the most depressing thing I read every single year. The 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 evangel Evangelical Church as a as a whole is not clear on anything. We're confused. We are just as confused as the surrounding culture. And so, what we need, what we need as a church is to have clarity, which will enable us to live distinctly from the world. It'll make us distinct as a people, better better able to represent the gospel. Here's the third thing. It'll empower our witness. It'll empower our witness. Why? Well, because at the end of chapter 15, after Paul has given the most extensive treatment on the resurrection of Christ, he says this. He says, Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why should we study this? Because it will empower our witness. When you get through First uh, Corinthians and you end up in chapter 15 and you see what Christ has done, that he has completely defeated sin and death and has given you new life in his name, that will empower your witness. You'll be able to say, I have new life right now. I've been completely forgiven of my sins. I have the Holy Spirit living within me. I have a new purpose in this life, and that will empower our witness going forward. Amen? Why don't you stand? I'll pray. And remember, the um, luncheon for Zach and Tiff is right next door, right after we're done here.
encourage you to go to that. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians, the, all of the Corinthian correspondence that we're going to be working through over the next uh, little bit of time. And we pray, Father, that you would shape our hearts, our minds, our very lives around the truth of the gospel so that we're better able to represent the good news of Christ, the love and the life of Christ into the community in which you've placed us. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.